0: How can we be sure about what we believe? Because belief itself is not proof of the truth that we say we believe. There's a huge distinction between subjective certainty, what I believe to be true, and objective truth, what actually is true. Something that Jessica and I talk about all the time are so many things that we believed when we were children just because we were told them, and then we believed they just have to be true. One of those is that if you swallow gum, it takes your stomach seven years to digest. Someone told me this, and I believed until probably about six years ago that was true. (laughs) I believed that You actually could mail your plate of food to China. There was an actual address. We believed that sitting too close to the TV would actually make you go blind. I continually tell my kids, stand back from the TV. You can't swim for an hour after you eat. Going outside with your hair will automatically give you a cold. That's not actually how it works. What are some of the folklores that you had to disremember because someone once told you that they were true? Well, this morning we are going to be speaking about the deep truths of Scripture. And unlike what we were told as we were children... What God tells us, what God reveals to us in his inerrant and infallible word is the truth. It is what is going to happen. It is what has happened. Because it is a revelation of himself and he is the God of truth. Jesus, just a few chapters ago, said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And what's here before us this morning, the truth that Jesus is telling his disciples in John 16 is that only God, it is only God who can reveal himself to his people. It is only The interpersonal working of the Holy Spirit that any of us actually believe the truth. As Augustine once said, God works our faith, acting in a miraculous way in our hearts in order that we might believe. On September 7th, we will begin our Children's Catechism Club again. We'll be re-kicking it off. And for some of you who don't know what Catechism Club is, it's where we catechize our children. We teach them the truth of our holy religion through question and answering. We ask them the question, who made you? And the answer is God. Question number two, what else did God make? God made all things. Question number three, why did God make all things? And the answer, for his own glory. Luke and Joel, you better be able to answer all three of those. There are 145 questions, all of them with a similar answer. And our hope and our prayer and why we teach and catechize our children is so that they know the truths of Scripture. Our catechism is a systematic theology. It's an organization of the truths that we find in Scripture. And our hope and our prayer is that we teach these truths to our children so that at some point in their life, they might be able to answer those questions. That at some point in their life, when they're older, they can hear those questions and there'll be an automatic response. Who made me? God did. This is our hope. This is our prayer. But here's the kicker. No matter how much truth we teach our children, however important it is that we teach them to do systematic theology, teaching them truth will not enable them to believe the truth. No matter how much, like the Apostle Apostle explains in 1 Corinthians 15, no no matter how much we lay out the objective truth, of God, the world he has created, and what he has done for us. No matter what we say, we cannot convince someone of the truth. It requires an act of God. Our confession says that by his word and spirit, he calls out humanity out of the state of sin and death, which they are by nature to a grace and salvation through Jesus Christ, by enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining determining them to, to which is good, and drawing them to Christ freely by His grace. This is why every Sunday, as I'm about to pray, this is why every Sunday I pray that God might work a miracle That there is nothing that I can say or anyone can say behind this desk that will change a heart. No matter what I say, no matter how much proof and fact that I give you, unless the Spirit works in your hearts, you will never believe in Jesus Christ. It takes an act of God. And if God has not acted in your life, you cannot and will not believe in the gospel. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, that he is the only hope of your salvation, and you believe that he is the Messiah from God, we should rejoice because God has performed a miracle in your life. He has taken what is dead and made it alive. And what I want us to look at, particularly this morning, is how God the Spirit, who comes from God the Father and God the Son, comes and guides us in, as he says, all truth. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1, this is to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Today, as Greg read the passage, we see this great truth. It's bookended. God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit has planned, accomplished, and applied our salvation. That we are saved is a work and a miracle of God. That's where we're going. And this morning, I want us to see two primary, two things of these three. I want us to look at our salvation that was accomplished by Jesus Christ, and I want us to see how our salvation is secured in Jesus Christ. Before we go, let us pray. Father, we are speaking of the deep things of God this morning. Lord, use me as an instrument to proclaim your truth, but Lord, we ask that you work a miracle in our lives. We ask that your Spirit will revive us, will draw us back out of our sin that leads to death, and will present us perfect and pure in Christ. Lord, may this be what this church is about. That without Christ, we are and have nothing. But Lord, that you are keeping us. You are holding us fast through the power of your Spirit for the glory of your own name. Lord, may we use these great truths for the good, not only of ourselves but of the community in which we live. May we bear witness to this great truth. Father, we ask that you draw near to us. We lift up Jonathan Pence and Miss Mary Elizabeth and Penny Gardner and John Michael Atkinson and Cynthia Jaqua and Peggy Bauer. Lord, we ask for your healing. We ask for you to work. We ask that you protect Ron and his surgery tomorrow. We ask that baby Murph continues to grow. We ask that baby Murph sleeps so his parents can sleep. Lord, we ask you to bless this congregation as we move into all of these new activities with our Sunday school and our small groups and our catechism club and our youth group and our men's and women's Bible studies. Lord, bless those times. Teach us of who you are and who you've created us to be. Enable us to fulfill your law in righteousness for the good of this county, that we might be a blessing. Lord, we continue to pray as we see all these new subdivisions continually going up and people continually moving to Fayette County. Lord, that means there are more people we get to tell them about you. Put that on our hearts. Lord, we pray for our country, for our president and our vice president. May you bless them. Give them true biblical wisdom that reveals our Savior of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Read with me John 16, verse 4. Beginning in the first part of verse four, "But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. I must confess that I've done you a disservice. We've been in the Upper Room Discourse for over five weeks, and there's something that I have yet to tell you, and there's something that I have yet to address. This text isn't written to you. This text isn't talking about you. These very specific words that Jesus is saying in this closed room with his 11 disciples, because we've seen Judas was there, but Satan entered his heart, and he left to do what he was supposed to do to fulfill the Scriptures. But what we are seeing in this upper room is that Jesus is teaching these 11 disciples who would become apostles a very specific thing that is true for them that is not necessarily true for us. Now, I I, I must admit... These truths apply to us, but these truths are not said directly to us. And wh- why, why, why am I making that distinction this morning? Well, because here in this passage, we see Jesus tells disciples a very specific thing that does not necessarily apply to us. Just as he has said in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 27, "...and you will bear witness..." Because you have been with me from the beginning. We did not walk around with Jesus for three years. Jesus did not come to our workplace and say, go turn in your resignation and follow me. And then he has said very specifically to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is going to work through you and you also will bear witness These men would eventually write our scriptures. Five men in this room write almost every New Testament book that we have. These men are, as what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, were gifts to the church that Jesus worked through his spirit in a very specific way in their lives that he will not do in our lives. If you are writing a book for the New Testament, please let me know. We need to have a conversation. (laughs) All of these men would eventually die, church history tells us, because they were preaching The gospel of Jesus Christ. They were fulfilling, as we see in Acts 1, they were fulfilling the Great Commission. And this does have implications for our lives. But if we don't address the fact of the matter that Jesus is telling something very specific in their lives, we miss what Jesus is actually trying to say. And I want us to see what Jesus is telling these disciples so that we can understand what he wants us to hear. 12% of all gym memberships happen in January. All gym memberships are closed. Oh, sorry, 50% of gym memberships are closed by June. Primarily, most studies have shown people quit the gym because of lack of motivation. One website said, people frequently sign up for a gym membership because they feel good. There's a surge of motivation. They've talked to a friend. They've had an encounter that it changed their life, and it sparks this new interest that I want to go to the gym. But here's the problem. They typically go too hard too quickly. They go for two or three weeks, and then they start feeling tired and sore. Then they feel limited. Then they feel overwhelmed. And then they quit going to the gym. And here's what this website presents as a solution. For starters, you should make sure that you set healthy expectations. Understand that this is a long-term commitment, not a short-term burst. And when you start going to the gym... Push yourselves, but do not over-exhaust or over-exert yourselves. Jesus has had real expectations for these disciples. He discloses to them, There are many things that I have wanted to tell you, but you weren't ready because you would have been burned out. For three years, they walked with him. They slept in the same places that he slept. They ate the same things that he ate. And now he is telling them, there are some things that I have not told you from the beginning because I was with you and because you weren't quite ready. And now he is telling them. Jesus is telling them, they are are ready. And they have to be. Because he is leaving. They will be ready to accomplish what God has chosen them to do, but it's not because of anything that they are or anything they have done. They are ready because he will send them the helper, the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says in verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked, where am I going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow will fill your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the why to where he is going. And we, we, we must understand, what is Jesus saying here in verse 5? None of you asked, where are you going? Who remembers, who, who's already asked this question? Peter asked this very question. And he wasn't the only one. Thomas asked this specific question. Jesus, where are you going? And now there's three ways we can try to understand this. Is this a contradiction in the Scriptures? Has Jesus really forgotten that they have actually asked this question? The second way we can understand this is that he means you are not asking me now where I am going. We've had some conversations. We've already had dinner. Some people have left the dinner now, they're just not asking where he's going. Or there's the third reason. What he means is that you have not been asking where I'm going for the right reasons. Now, how, how can we answer questions like this? Well, I'm going to tell you the, the, first, the first option is a bad option. This Jesus has just described himself as the truth. My guess is he's not getting it wrong now. So how can we answer these, between these other two options? That he is asking that you are not asking it now, or that you are asking for the wrong reasons. And I believe the text actually reveals to us this question. They've been asking this question because their hearts are full of sorrow. And that's okay, right? That's okay that when we lose somebody, we show sorrow. I've been to more funerals in the last five years than over my entire life. And at those funerals, we mourn together because we have lost someone. And this is good and this is proper. Because when we lose someone, we have lost them because of the ramifications of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. But at the exact same time we show sorrow over our loved ones, Paul tells us that we should be encouraged and build one one another up because of where they are going. And what Jesus is revealing is the why of the where. Or put probably better, he's explaining where he is going and that answers the why he is going there. The disciples have only been concerned about where Jesus is going because that means he's leaving them. And then unfortunately, that reveals in the disciples' heart they don't care about what Jesus is going to do. They only care about what they want Jesus to do. But Jesus gives them, in the, the, the best way I can explain this passage, Jesus gives them the clear eyes Full hearts can't lose reason why. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am going away. He has told them this 14 times in this gospel. That he is going to the Father. The one who sent him. And wrapped up in this explanation is the importance of why he is going. Why did the angel tell Joseph to name Jesus, Jesus, because he was going to save his people from their sins. The where he is going, what's wrapped up in that destination is that he is going to the cross as the sinless son of God. He is going to the cross to be a propitiation for sins, and this is the pinnacle of his saving work. Jesus told his disciples, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' going to the Father, encapsulated in that is his death, that he would become our just payment for our sins that he would defeat our enemies, that he would set us free, that he would reconcile us to the Father, that he would unite us to himself, and that everything he has accomplished now becomes ours. This is why it is to their advantage. Because if Jesus does not go to the Father, Jesus doesn't go to the cross and Jesus doesn't raise from the dead. If he doesn't go to the cross, he won't save us from our sins. If he doesn't ascend into heaven, he won't intercede for us as we continue to sin. If he doesn't go to the Father, he will not come again in glory. This is to our advantage. This is why Jesus must go. This is the definition of a friend who gives himself. This is the point of the last 15 chapters of the book of John. It's to tell us why Jesus is going to where he came from. Why he is leaving and why his disciples cannot follow him. Because Jesus has accomplished. Jesus has accomplished our redemption. This is what he is telling his disciples. This is what they have gotten wrong. But he doesn't scold them. He doesn't come down hard on them. He tells them this is something that you do not know, but you will remember. everything that I came to do, I will accomplish on your behalf. That is why I'm going away. But Jesus says more. There's even better news. Because not only will Jesus accomplish our salvation, but Jesus will also secure our salvation. What Jesus is focusing his disciples upon is the work of God the Holy Spirit and what he is about to do in the lives of these disciples. Jesus is telling them of the eternal benefit of what God the Spirit will accomplish in his name when he leaves. It is the Holy Spirit who will succeed in progressing God's story of redemption in this World, And this is what he says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will not see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And as we saw last week, guess what? The world doesn't like to be convicted of its sin. This was exactly what Jesus said twice. They hated me. They're going to hate you because they hated me, and they hated me because I revealed to them their sin. And then we see here in chapter 16, he says the same thing, except it is now God the Holy Spirit that will convict the world of its sin through these disciples. And as we saw last week, we saw how the world hated these disciples. You can look through Acts chapter 3 through 7 and see how the world hated his disciples. But here Jesus is telling these disciples something very specific and the reason I'm harping on this idea of these specific disciples is because what Jesus has just said happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world. Who does Peter preach to in Acts chapter 2? Men from every nation. He preaches to Medes and Mesopotamians and Judeans and Cappadocians and Asians and Egyptians and Romans and Arabians. Everything that Jesus promised happened with these disciples. The Spirit used the disciples to convict the world of its sin. And we also see that what Jesus says, that the Spirit through the apostles would convict the world concerning its sin. What does Peter say in Acts 2.23? You crucified and killed Jesus because you are lawless men. Their sin was that they rejected God's Messiah. There might have been murderers there. There might have been people who lied there. But the quintessential sin of all humanity is if you reject God's Messiah. And this is what the Spirit said that these men had done. And when they, when they heard this, what happened? We see one of the best biblical, biblical definitions of how the Spirit convicts people of their sin. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It was God, the Holy Spirit, using Peter preaching the gospel that convicted these hearers of their sin. This was a work of God. He revealed the truth, objective truths, and then he pierced them to their hearts. He performed a miracle on the day of Pentecost. The holy advocate, the holy helper, revealed the grace of God, because here's what the grace of God looks like. It doesn't just convict people of their sins and leave them there. For when the gospel is preached, people should be cut to the heart. We should be cut to the heart because of our sin, but because of the gospel, the Holy Spirit always offers us the answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing through Peter in Acts chapter 2. He's not only convicting them of their sin, he's offering a way of salvation. He's pointing them to Jesus. And they would either turn from their sins or the world would just hate them more. Because the world hates hearing about its own sin. The Spirit did exactly what Ezekiel promised that he would do. This is what we read as our assurance of pardon. That he would gather the nations from all the countries. That they shall be made clean from their uncleanliness. That the Spirit would put a new heart within them and give them eyes to see their need of the Savior who they crucified. And as Richard Phillips says, had Peter preached such a sermon just days earlier, now remember, just a few weeks before the sermon, Peter couldn't even confess Jesus before a servant girl. And now the Spirit of God is working through him, and the only result, if, if he would have preached this earlier, the only result would have been his abuse and his arrest. But because the Spirit was present with him, he convicted his hearers, and the results were entirely different. People believed in the gospel. Not because of Peter, but because this power of God working through the proclamation of the gospel. We also see that the Holy Spirit through the apostles would convict the world concerning their sin, concerning righteousness. And what we see here in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. This This is what I talked about earlier. This is the accomplishment that Jesus has done on our behalf. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It is the revelation of God's justice and righteousness is Jesus upon the cross. God the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its righteousness by revealing who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And Jesus also says that the Spirit through the prophets through, sorry, through the apostles, would convict the world concerning judgment. For it was at the resurrection of Jesus that Satan, the ruler of this world, was found guilty. For Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 15, he, at his resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ but notice, notice what the Spirit is doing in all three of these things, in convincing them of their sin, and convincing them of the righteousness, of convincing them of judgment. In all three of those things, what is the Spirit doing? He's pointing people to Jesus. He's convicting the world of their sin, but he's not pointing to himself. He's pointing to their need Of Jesus. All of it, God is pointing us to Jesus. This is what he says in verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All of this. Everything that we see happen in Acts chapter 2 is the inner workings of our Holy Trinity. that God is acting, that God has planned our salvation from the beginning of time, that God has accomplished our salvation in Christ, and that God secures our salvation in the Holy Spirit by giving us a new heart and living inside of us. And because of these things, Jesus used these apostles in an actual and a real way. So now you might be asking yourselves, what does this have to do with me? If this is all about these disciples and apostles, what does this have to do for me? Well, in the same types of ways, what these 11 apostles did for the world, we now feel and see the ramifications of that work. As I said, five of these apostles in this room would write for us the New Testament. And although these were promises for these apostles right here, then and there, we see the benefits of those things through the apostles that that same gospel is proclaimed. That the world is convicted of its sin. That the world is That the world sees the righteousness of Christ displayed upon the cross, and that the world is convicted that judgment of the evil one has happened at the resurrection. Why do we believe what we believe today? Because it's the truth, it is what has actually happened in history. But why do we believe it? Because God is gracious. And God is loving. And because God has changed our hearts. Because if it's left to us, we would choose the darkness and not the light. And in the same type of ways, Christ also charges us to bear witness to the world To call the world out of its sin, out of the darkness, and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we need to be convicted of our own sin. And sometimes we need to be reminded of the righteousness of God for us in Christ. And sometimes we need to be reminded That the ruler of this world has been judged. A few chapters ago, Jesus told his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. And this is why I had us read from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Because here's the real implications of what this passage means. This passage really is about what the Holy Spirit will do for the world. Remember, the world is those who reject God and his Messiah. But here's the real, here's a real application of this for us. Is that when the Spirit descends upon us, that's when we call God Father. Because he did not leave us. As orphans, but he has adopted us into the children to be his children. And because he is Father, we know that we are secure for eternity because this is an act of God, the Holy Trinity. This is why we come to this table to remind us of the love that God had for us since the beginning of time in Christ and what he has given us through the Spirit. Let us come and let us taste, touch, smell, and feel the love of Christ for us. Amen. Amen.